0: King Zedekiah sent for Jeremiah the prophet and received him at the third entrance of the temple of the Lord. The king said to Jeremiah, I'll ask you a question. Hide nothing from me. Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, If I tell you, will you not surely put me to death? And if I give you counsel, you, you will not listen to me. Then King Zedekiah swore secretly to Jeremiah, As the Lord lives, who made our souls, I will not put you to death or deliver you into the hand of these men who seek your life. Then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, If you will surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then your life shall be spared and this city shall not be burned with fire and you and your house shall live. But if you do not surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then this city shall be given into the hand of the Chaldeans and they shall burn it with fire and you shall not escape from their hand. King Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, I'm afraid of the Judeans who have deserted to the Chaldeans, lest I be handed over to them and they deal cruelly with me. And Jeremiah said, You shall not be given to them. Obey now the voice of the Lord in what I say to you, and it shall be well with you, and your life shall be spared. But if you refuse to surrender, this is the vision which the Lord has shown to me. Behold, all the women left in the house of the king of Judah were being led out to the officials of the king of Babylon and were saying, your trusted friends have deceived you and prevailed against you. Now that your feet are sunk in the mud, they turn away from you. All your wives and your sons shall be led out to the Chaldeans and you yourself shall not escape from their hand but shall be seized by the king of Babylon and this city shall be burned with fire. Then Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, let no one know of these words and you shall not die. If the officials hear that I have spoken with you and come to you And say to you, tell us what you said to the king and what the king said to you. Hide nothing from us and we will not put you to death. Then you shall say to them, I made a humble plea to the king that he would not send me back to the house of Jonathan to die there. Then all the officials came to Jeremiah and asked him. And he answered them as the king had instructed him. So they stopped speaking with him for the conversation had not been overheard. And Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard until the day that Jerusalem was taken. Read that far in God's word. As we pick up our study of chapter 38, we remember that Jeremiah just came out of the pit. The cistern built for water that only had mud left in it. He was put in and then was rescued out of it in our previous verses. Jeremiah was now called into a meeting with the king one-on-one to tell the king one more time, one last time to turn to God and to trust in God. Jeremiah had gone to the pit and back. Now the king was receiving one more offer to accept going to exile and back. And it points us forward to Jesus going to the tomb and back. Now the king had called Jeremiah in and the question is, will Jeremiah be faithful and tell him what God's message is regarding the city? Uh, Paul wrote about God's plan of dealing with our sin in Romans 6.6. 6, we know that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, Romans 6.6. 6. The king was afraid of God's judgment. So when he again called Jeremiah, the king was hoping to hear a different verdict from God. Maybe the city won't be destroyed. What needed to change was not God's verdict, rather the king's response. It was time. Last chance. It brings us to the main point. True life comes when we realize it is time to trust God and we move from fear of God's judgment to faith in his son. So first, surrendering to God's plan of redemption is the pathway to life. Second point, being stuck in fear is the opposite of repenting and trusting God. And third, Jeremiah himself struggled with fear. He needed a savior We do too. So first now, surrendering to God's plan of redemption is the pathway of life. Um, If you have your Bible open, please turn back to uh, the previous chapter, chapter 37, verse 21. If you look at the very last sentence of chapter 37, Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard. You see that? Remember we talked about how the court of the guard is really their court, like it's a center city for us, where the courthouse is, this is where the king would reign and do his, his justice, and render court cases. So there is Jeremiah kind of in house arrest. It's a prison, but not as bad as the dungeon, not as bad as the pit. So there he is, Jeremiah remaining in the court of the guard. That's how chapter 37 ends. Then, Jeremiah went into the pit in chapter 38, verses 1 through 6, as we studied last time. Now look at chapter 38, verse 13. Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard that exact same sentence is repeated. Why is that put there? It's reminding us that Jeremiah survived the pit. Surrendering to God's plan of redemption was the pathway of life for Jeremiah. Now look ahead to 28, verse 28 of our chapter, chapter 38, 38 verse 28, where again we read, Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard. Jeremiah was a picture of what happens When you trust in God, God brings us out of sin and death and enables us to live on. So the question now turned to the king. Will the king trust in the Lord in a similar way? We have the word from Jeremiah. Now we have the example, like little movie scene of Jeremiah's life. He trusted in God and he survived. Oh, king, last chance. Will the king trust? So verse 14, the king calls for a second secret meeting with Jeremiah. and The location this time was at the third entrance of the temple, we're told in verse 14. It was an entrance reserved for the king. This is Jeremiah's last encounter with the king before the city will be destroyed. The not listening king, again, said he wants an update from God. <clears throat> verse 15, Jeremiah asked whether the king would kill him if Jeremiah gave the true answer from God. And Jeremiah was remembering the pit. Wasn't he? And Jeremiah told the king that the king wouldn't listen. He would not Shema. You remember our Hebrew word there, that's again here in verse fifteen. And in response, the king in verse sixteen made a solemn promise not to kill Jeremiah. Look at how strong the wording is here. Very interesting. How the king even promises in the Lord's name not to kill Jeremiah. Consider the caution of Jesus in Matthew five, thirty seven. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have to wonder, why is this king swearing so strongly that he won't kill Jeremiah? Hang on to that thought. Verse 17, there's irony of the use of the word officials. Earlier in our chapter, it was the officials of Judah who wanted to end Jeremiah's life and put him in a pit to die. But now, in verse 17, it's the Babylonian officials who are the ones who would spare the king's life. Isn't that ironic? That was God's offer of redemption for the king. Same is true for all the citizens of the city. If you surrender to God, his plan to treat sin seriously and bring his people off into exile in Babylon... You'll survive. You'll live. It's the pathway of life. Surrender to Babylon is the only pathway of life. However, verse 18 spells out the opposite. The warning for refusing. If you do not surrender, then the enemy will burn the city. There's only two ways. The way of life and the way of death. So that's our first point. Surrendering to God's plan of redemption, which is the pathway of life. We move on to our second point. Verses 19 to 23, being stuck in fear is the opposite of repenting and trusting in God. In verse 19, we begin to be shown again the fatal weakness in the character of this king. There was a clear action he knew to be right, but he lacked the decisiveness to do it. With imminent destruction of the king's whole family and whole city at stake, the king literally told us his motivation was fear for himself in verse 19. He was afraid that some of his own citizens who had taken God's kind offer and were already in exile, would mistreat the king when the king arrived in Babylon if the king were to surrender and go to Babylon. Notice the king refers to them as, verse 19, Judeans who have deserted to the Chaldeans. That's not how God was describing them. God was saying they're the ones who trusted and obeyed God and surrendered to Babylon, which was the right thing to do, the pathway of life. But the king called them deserters. And the king was irrationally afraid of the people who were doing the right thing. The king was faced with a life or death alternative. All he could think about was an illogical possibility that a handful of citizens who had previously submitted to exile in Babylon might abuse their king. Why would it matter if the king had been taken over by King Nebuchadnezzar anyway? What does it show us about this king that he was more afraid for himself, of his own people, who were exiled in Babylon than he was of the entire Babylonian army. It's illogical. He's stuck in fear and fear has him thinking more and more crazy thoughts. In verse 20, Jeremiah assured the frightened king he would not be handed over those to, to those Judeans. That should solve the matter. Don't be so distracted by that anymore, Jeremiah is saying to the king. Then Jeremiah redirects the king in verse 20 back to where he should be focused. Focus on God, O king. Here, Jeremiah made one more appeal. One final, last appeal to the king to listen to God. Guess what the first word of Jeremiah's last plea to the king was? O oh, class. It's a Hebrew word. Shema. Hear the voice of the Lord, he says in verse 20. Is it too late for the king? No, our God is merciful. Look at the merciful offer given. I'll read it in full from verse 20. This is God's last word to the king through Jeremiah. Obey, Shema, heed, right? Heed now the voice of the Lord in what I say to you and it shall be well with you and your life shall be spared. Turn and live. Why will you die, O king? Or don't turn and die. And now the alternative was described for his warning, also a mercy to him, to have the full display of the wrong option and its consequences put before him. If the king refused, then the Lord mercifully gave him a little movie scene of what would happen. All the women left in the palace, some were his family, multiple wives, so we have wives plural, probably also a harem, Had all been dragged, would be dragged away in this scene by an enemy army into an ancient world heading for, you know, all I could say is mistreatment and atrocities. That's clearly what's in in view for these women. And in that scene, knowing what they're heading for, these women would begin to turn and ridicule their own king. The women would say that the friends of peace, the friends of shalom is the word here, had misled the king. As if prophetic, These women would then predict that Babylon would put their king's feet in the mud and leave him there. Does that sound familiar, church? That's what the king did to Jeremiah in the first part of our chapter. As we know from verses 1 through 6, Jeremiah was in the mud. He sunk in the mud and left there to die. Here's the comparison. When Jeremiah's feet were in the mud, there was an Ebed-Melech. There was a servant of the king to hoist him up. The warning is that when this king's feet are in the mud, there will be no Ebed-Melech. There will be no servants of the king to hoist him up. So in verse 22, when the women are chanting or singing this song in the vision, this little movie scene about what would happen if you don't surrender, they say that the most trusted friends the king has, quote, Now that your feet are sunk in the mud, they turn away from you. And even a preview of what will happen to the king's family didn't turn this king around to repent. Verse 23 All your wives and your sons shall be led out to the Chaldeans. That doesn't cause the king to turn toward God and do the right thing. The king is stuck in his fear, his irrational fears, and he cares more for keeping this secret his conversation with Jeremiah than he cares about his own family or his own survival. Look how God merc- uh, mercifully through Jeremiah warned once more the fate of the king and the city if he didn't repent. Verse 23, you yourself shall not escape from their hand but shall be seized by the king of Babylon and this city shall be burned with fire. Could it be made more clear? The invitation is there. The warning is if you don't surrender. Being stuck in fear is the opposite of repenting and trusting in God. And we move to our third point, verses 24 to 28, where Jeremiah struggled with fear and proved that he needed a Savior, and so do we. Verse 24, the king showed no concern for his wives or his children of the city. The only response that the king had was to express concern for himself in verse 24. All he could think to do was to end the conversation with Jeremiah with even more self-serving secrecy. He asks Jeremiah not to let anyone know of the content of their conversation or else Jeremiah would die. Apparently, the king was already forgetting a promise he so strongly made in verse 16. As the Lord lives, who made our souls, I will not put you to death. His yes was not a yes. His no was not a no. Even though he called down the name of the Lord and his promise. The king gave instructions for Jeremiah what to say To the king's own officials, if they were to ask about that secret conversation, Jeremiah was instructed to only say the king, he pled for the king to put him in a safe place rather than go back to the prison house to die there. So verse 27, the king's officials did in fact question Jeremiah about his private conversation. And that's where our hero, Jeremiah, did something wrong. He's not perfect. Jeremiah did not reveal the conversation, the full conversation he had with the king Instead, he told exactly what the king told him to say, which was a lie, or at least leaving parts of it out. It seems to be a weak moment here for Jeremiah. Following his recent beatings and his sufferings in the pit, he may still have had mud between his toes, but it's not an excuse. It's understandable, but it's not an excuse. It's where Jeremiah's analogy with Jesus ends. Jesus never failed. He always did what was right. None of the other men had been present to hear the conversation between the prophet and the king, so they're forced to accept the answer of Jeremiah. Jeremiah's moment of weakness is a reminder that we all have our times of weakness and sin. If we confess our sins, God will forgive. He told us himself, 1 John 1, 1.9, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So verse 28, this episode closed with a statement that Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard until the day that Jerusalem was taken. Jeremiah's faithful ministry of God's word for decades resulted in hostility towards Jeremiah himself, from his own people, even from his own family, as well as physical suffering and even attempted murder. But Jeremiah's obedience to preach the words that the Lord gave him ended up blessing Jeremiah with fellowship with God that few people have experienced. Yes, Jeremiah was a human, and he struggled. He had faults and failings. He messed up, and here we're told how he sinned. But overall, Jeremiah was a faithful prophet of God still. Jeremiah's job was to tell the word of God, and he used the expression, declares the Lord more than anyone else in the Old Testament, 176 times, declares the Lord is said by Jeremiah. He had many experiences with all kinds of people, friends, enemies. He spoke with good people and bad people. He spoke with kings and priests and prophets. He went to large variety of places, everywhere from the temple and the palace to the dungeon, the pit, and exile. For, for, for Jeremiah, admittedly imperfect Jeremiah, doing the Lord's work and preaching the Lord's work, word meant an interesting life a life in which it was best to keep right on trusting the Lord day by day. This last phrase in verse 27 could be translated, the word had not been heard. So there you have it in your English standard, the conversation had not been overheard. We could also simply translate it, the word had not been heard. It was God's final comment on the reign of this king. He had not heard God's message. The word had not been heard. Guess what word is there, church? Shema again. It's a theme. It ties things together neatly for us so we don't miss it. The matter had not been heard when it came to a private meeting. The last one, the last chance, this king would meet one-on-one with the prophet and ask him, has God changed his mind? Is there a different verdict? What's the outcome now? Please tell me the city won't be destroyed. Jeremiah gave him the answer, O king, the city will be destroyed. That is the verdict of God. The destruction is coming. The destruction is certain. Sin must be treated this way. And the matter had not been heard. The king still would not hear. He would not shema. It was not for Jeremiah's lack of speaking it. Put this final assessment together with the first verse of chapter 37 and it corresponds. From start to finish, the king had not heard. Listen to chapter 37 verse 2. Neither he nor his servants nor the people of the land listened, again Shema, to the words of the Lord that he spoke through Jeremiah the prophet. So these two chapters from 37 verse 2 to 38 verse 27 are bound together in order to officially evaluate the reign of this king at a time when the kingdom finally and fully and officially shut its ears to what God was saying to them. Officially through its official representative, the king himself, God's word had not been heard. And they tried to kill his prophet. That's the conclusion. This is a, a monumental moment. If you'll look ahead to chapter 39, the city is destroyed. It brings us to reflect and point forward to the cross. When God sent his son Jesus into the world, not just to preach the word, but himself as the word of God, Jesus came to that same city of Jerusalem, which had been destroyed and then later rebuilt. We remember Jesus' triumphal entry into that city of Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. And the faithful prophet himself, the God-honoring king himself, Soon after he entered into Jerusalem, like Jeremiah our weeping prophet, Jesus the Son of God started to grieve over the city and its sinful condition. Jesus started to weep over the city Jerusalem, and here's what Jesus said in Matthew 23:37, "O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not." Willing, Matthew twenty three thirty seven. Jesus knew the condition of the sin of the city required the destruction of the sinners. The lesson had been ever so plain in the book of Jeremiah. Jesus also knew that the city was about to crucify God's authorized messenger, Christ Jesus, not just in a pit and someone will rescue. They'll kill him before they put him in the pit. They put him to death on the cross and then they buried him in that tomb. the only effective solution to cleanse the sin of God's people, and Jesus understood that. It was what the pit and the rescue prefigured for Jeremiah. It pointed us to Jesus. It was what the exile and homecoming prefigured. It all points ahead that Jesus, and Jesus alone, is God's way of salvation. Jesus prayed for the cup to be taken away from him. It was so severe. Together with praying, not for his own will, but rather, for God, the Father's will to be done. Luke twenty-two, 42. Isn't that a heart of listening? The prophet who will say what the Father says. The king who will listen to instructions from his king, his heavenly king. It was a surrender to God's plan, the Father's plan. That was the way of life for us, the way of death for Jesus. When it was time for Jesus to trust, he trusted in God the Father. And that's how we were saved from our sin. It's time to trust. So that's our lesson. We have three concluding applications to ourselves around trust. Number one, when we sin, it's time to trust God that repentance is required. We have to listen to God's message. If the Shema, repeated, tells us anything, heeding, obeying, listening, tells us anything, it's when we sin, it's time to repent. Which is needed, Judah to repent or God to give give grace? Both. The new covenant of God that's been revealed here in Jeremiah in earlier chapters is affirming the need for God's grace and our repentance. God gives us grace to repent. The cross of Jesus Christ invites us to repent and supplies us with the grace to do so. Surrender and live or resist and die. God calls us to surrender to his moral standard, admit our failures, plead Christ's blood. God warns us that if we resist God's moral standard, insist on our own innocence, we die spiritually. Jeremiah preached faithfully, yet he himself sinned. I'm thankful when I come across these passages where Moses, the great man of God, sinned. David, the great man of God, sinned. Jeremiah, the great man of God, sinned. Because it reminds us that everything we do here in the New Testament church is built on grace. I'm thankful that the New Testament church, just like the Old Testament prophets, were people that God uses who still struggle with their own sin. Pastors and elders and deacons and members are not perfect people. But we keep repenting and trusting and obeying. How thankful we are for this. That the church keeps insisting on repentance. Keeps on forgiving each other for our failings. And yet, we understand it's all built on grace. King Zedekiah is a warning to us. He refused to accept God's judgment, therefore refused to accept God's rescue. This would lead to capture, mutilation, and death for him and his household. We deserve that judgment, the judgment of God's enemies. But Christ died in our place. The question is, will we accept God's judgment on Christ for us? That cross is for us. And then surrender to God's plan for redemption. This is his plan. True life comes from acknowledging our sin and our need for a Savior, like we're told in 1 John 1.8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If Jeremiah had sin, everybody in this room, yours truly included, has sinned. Thankful there's mercy from God. Thankful there's mercy in the church for leaders who are just humans, just sinners, saved by grace. God's promise to us is this grace the king's promise swearing on the name of god remember that he couldn't be trusted yet jeremiah gave him god's message anyway the true message god was saying to the king it doesn't have to be this way turn O king last minute you can still turn O king and in our sinful nature we're just like that king god is saying to us it doesn't have to be that way The tragic figure of this king is lifted before us as a warning. Is it you? Is it me? It doesn't have to be that way. Turn now. Turn to this God. He's filled with grace. Yet will we? Listen to God's message. Repent, believe, listen, trust, obey, live. Shema. Secondly, when we're afraid, it's time to trust God. God. This king was afraid. He literally said that to us in verse 19. I'm afraid. Well, King David was afraid. He had the same kind of situations as this King Zedekiah, facing enemy invasion and takeover. But King David knew how to trust God while afraid. Listen to the famous Psalm 23:4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. We learn a lesson for how to overcome our fears from King David. If you have not trusted that God is with you, now is the time. It's time to trust. We don't live by fear, but rather by faith. When a teenager has stolen something because other teens told him to, he must go back and repay. But he's afraid his parents finding out. And then what? It's time to trust God. A man is involved in a romantic friendship with a woman who's not a Christian. He knows he must break off the relationship, but he's afraid of the loneliness that ensues. It's time to trust God. An addict knows that her alcohol use is destroying her life. She's afraid to leave it because it's so familiar. It's time to trust God. A wife has secretly got into credit card debt or an eating disorder. Husband has fallen into pornography. Each is afraid to get spiritual help. They're afraid of the shame when their spouse finds out who they really are. It's time to trust God. God can bring great good out of a bad situation, if we'll turn to him. Maybe there's an Ebed-Melech nearby that you don't see, that will save you, like was there to save Jeremiah. We don't know about Ebed-Melech, but we know about the servant of the king, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, is nearby to offer grace to help you, no matter the mess that you made or that has been made to you. When we're afraid, it's time to trust God. And then thirdly, lastly, when we suffer, It's time to trust God. Suffering is the norm pattern for the Christian. This because suffering is the norm pattern for Jesus. Our catechism question 27 explains that Christ was undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross, in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. Scripture is the original source of the truth of our catechism about Christ's suffering in a God-honoring way, Think of 1 Peter 2.23, where Peter explained, When Christ suffered, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Just as Christ suffered and kept right on trusting God the Father, so also when we suffer, we are called to keep right on trusting God the Father. Peter wrote to the church in 1 Peter 2.21 that Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps? What steps? Trusting while suffering. Think of Jeremiah in the pit. Trusting while suffering. Think of the feet of Jesus while they're being pierced. He knew he would suffer and die for us. Yet he kept right on trusting God the Father that he would be vindicated and rise from the dead. The Apostle Paul wrote that he even wanted this sort of suffering. He wanted to share in Christ's suffering. Listen carefully to Philippians 3, 10, and 11. I've suffered the loss of all things that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Jeremiah wanted to honor the Lord even if it meant standing up to a king and trusting God, going to a pit and back. Paul wanted to honor God even if it meant standing up to kings and trusting God, going to prison and back. Jesus wanted to honor God the Father and his plan for redemption, even if it meant standing up to kings and trusting in God and going to a tomb and back. Resurrection power means that when we sin, when we're afraid, and when we suffer, it's time to trust God. Let's pray.